This is Lancaster, global research tales from the north of England. We're now in a position where we can detect a smoke plume as small as a barbecue at ranges up to 10 miles away in the day or the night under any weather conditions. So the technology, which is the intellectual property is captured in the software, um, has improved to the point where we can do that. So my name is uh, Michael Koch. I'm Professor in Experimental Space Science here at the Physics Department at Lancaster University. My area of expertise is mainly in high-latitude, high-altitude atmospheric physics, near-Earth space science, and I specialize in uh, low-light night vision imaging of the auroras. So I've worked mainly with high-power ground-based radars and video and still imaging of the auroras. I did my undergraduate degree in electrical engineering, but I was always interested in having an experience and spending a year in Antarctica. And to do that, I had to join a team, and that team required someone with electrical engineering expertise, mainly to run and operate equipment and maintain equipment, but also run the program. And uh, so on that basis, I got to go to Antarctica. I spent a year there. And then, of course, I became interested in the science and the physics. So I transitioned to physics thereafter. When I was at school as a teenager, we had a couple of people visit us and show us their experience in Antarctica. Then it turned out the son of a neighbor of my parents living opposite us, he went to Antarctica and he showed me his pictures and slides and things. And I just became interested. Um, to be honest, I had never really seen snow and ice uh, in my life before. It was just the adventure of it and the novelty of it that uh, attracted me to it. And the idea that once you get left there, the ship departs, um, you're on your own. You've got to manage. You've got to grow up and manage. And um, sure, we did. You know, you look out for everybody and you just cope with the situation. It was fantastic. There was no communication back home, so we were utterly self-reliant. So regardless of your personality or, you know, your friendships or otherwise, we all knew that we all had to look out for each other. And that worked very well. We always knew we had everybody else's backs and um, we always work together despite maybe occasional personal differences and arguments and what have you. Given the circumstance and given the responsibility, you just step up into that role and uh, it worked amazingly well. Yeah, I flew into South Pole rather than taking the ship down um, and I was there for a shorter period of time. South Pole in itself was amazing because of the sheer isolation of the place. No internet, um, certainly no vegetation, certainly no rocks or anything of that description. And, and just the amazement that people less than a hundred years ago were still hiking to South Pole. Just the adventure, the risk, the danger was just incredible. On top of that, of course, South Pole is a special location on the earth for science and also just, you know, it's a geographic South Pole. So, yeah, it was also an amazing experience. <laughs> Auroras, of course, are a fascinating visual phenomenon, and we as human beings are very interested in uh, observing things as images, as movies, in the visual way. That's why, for example, whenever they send these amazing satellite missions to other planets, Mars and what have you, what are we interested in? Show me the pictures. Um, although the science is really in the other instrumentation. So it was more about a pandering to that, um, to that human need. Um, 
but it was also the more serious side of it is that, you know, the upper atmosphere is the interface between the near-Earth space environment and the atmosphere. So it's the coupling between what we now call space weather, driven by the sun, solar flares, coronal mass ejections, etc., and uh, what happens in our climate here on ground. And that interface between the two is through the Earth's magnetic field and the upper, upper atmosphere. And the aurora gives us a window into what's happening in space because aurora is an optical phenomenon that reflects the radiation that is coming from space into the atmosphere. And we can then map that back into space to see what's going on out there. The sensitivity of cameras has improved dramatically uh, by sort of factor of 10, factor of 100. And we are literally seeing things now that have always been there, but we couldn't see them. And so we've made discoveries, many of them, based on the increased sensitivity of the cameras, also their spectral response. We can view in the infrared, we can view in the ultraviolet, all those sorts of things. So that's made a big difference. Um, and then in other areas, for example, radar technology, we now have these very high power radar systems that can sond thousands of kilometers. We're part of a network of radars, there's currently 35 of them called Superdon, which allows us to sond the global upper atmosphere uh, simultaneously rather than just doing spot measurements. So there's been unbelievable progress in the last 20, 30 years. The charged particles, protons and electrons, that cause the aurora by bashing into the top of the atmosphere and causing the neutrals to glow, um, basically moving charges are currents. And currents are you know, electrical engineering. And those currents, just like your uh, heater or your cooker at home, generate heat. So we know the upper atmosphere is a massive sink of energy that is coming to us from the sun in the form of a huge flux of charged particles, and that energy is being dissipated in the upper atmosphere. That heating then causes turbulence, you get composition changes, you get vertical winds, you get horizontal winds, and they all contribute to the motion and the changes in the atmosphere that we witness. What's happening above the atmosphere um, is obviously important for space flight, whether it's human or satellites, because of the radiation environment. But that also couples in to our atmosphere and to our climate here on the ground. So um, space weather research, a large element of it, is uh, um, concerned about what happens to us on the ground in terms of climate change, in terms of individual storms. We have a lot of electric currents which generate magnetic fields. Those magnetic fields couple into things like power lines and pipelines. They generate currents which can cause overload of switching gear and um, uh, power lines and so on and so forth, or cause corrosion and pipelines. So these things have real effects and they're not only dominant at very high latitudes, even the latitudes of the UK, there's an active research field. And we've now discovered even at lower latitudes that they can be important under certain circumstances. So there's a myriad of things that are, you know, it's a coupled environment. What's happening in space affects us here on the ground, definitely. There's no doubt that the vulnerability of the human race has increased as a result of using technology. So, for example, we know that we're now highly reliant on satellite navigation.
but satellite navigation relies on satellites in space. They have to communicate to the ground. That communication path can be severely disturbed um, during geomagnetic storms, and that affects things like flight safety. If you're flying, uh, communication to the ground, uh, navigation, landing, all these things are safety issues mm -hmm. which can be affected by uh, storms in space. Um, likewise, um, the operability of any equipment that you have uh, can be affected by storms in space. Most people on the ground don't necessarily notice that because there's lots of mitigation procedures that are in place that have come out of research that has been done over decades. When you're imaging the auroras from the ground, you're basically looking at fuzzy, diffuse objects that are far away, typically more than 100 kilometers away. And we realize that that methodology of processing the images, whether they're still or video, is the same as detecting smoke plumes in forest fires and wildfires. These are fuzzy objects that move that are far away, typically of the order of 10 or so kilometers away. So if you apply that methodology that we had used on the auroras to detecting smoke plumes in forests, especially commercial forests, you can detect the fire that has started much, much sooner, usually within less than eight minutes, um, than uh, you would otherwise be able to detect it, in which case the mitigation procedure to stop that fire is going to be much more successful. And this has resulted in um, a spin-out company that was founded with currently about 100 people, um, and we deploy automatic cameras. We have hundreds of towers in commercial forests with cameras on them that view the forest and view the horizon, and all they do is look for smoke. And when they detect a smoke, it is geolocated. We have a geographic map of the terrain, 10 meter resolution, and uh, we then report that fire to the forester and its location, and we can then track that fire. And over the last decade or so that the company has been active, we have managed to show that even within the relatively small area that we are operating in, that we have saved not only billions of pounds in terms of timber not lost, but also billions of pounds in terms of carbon dioxide not emitted. So, in fact, it turns out the value of carbon dioxide not emitted is greater than the value of timber saved. Um, so we're not only contributing to a commercial gain, but we're also contributing to reducing climate change effects. And then we're trying to now, along with the competition, roll out to lots and lots of forests. I mean, the number of forests that are covered or the area that's covered, even though it's hundreds of thousands of hectares, millions of hectares, is still tiny compared to the forested regions of the world. It's not only the commercial forests and therefore the industry, it's also life livelihoods and homesteads. People live in forested areas or they live in towns adjacent to them. And these fires, when they grow, they grow exponentially. They can be absolutely huge. So we're now in a position where we can detect a smoke plume as small as a barbecue at ranges up to 10 miles away in the day or the night under any weather conditions. So the technology, which is the intellectual property is captured in the software, um, has improved to the point where we can do that. Um, the, the trick is then to not have too many false alarms. 
So there are legitimate fires which are licensed. There are legitimate sources of fire due to industry or what have you. Um, but you don't want to send out the fire crew every time someone has a barbecue. So the tricky part is to suppress the false alarms whilst also detecting the real fires as quickly as possible. Well, I mean, our success rate at the moment is around 96%. So when we detect what we think is a smoke plume, 96% of the time we have found a real fire. And we, can, we detect thousands of fires daily. Um, the question then is, what is a dangerous fire? What isn't a dangerous fire? Um, but we're also working now on um, artificial intelligence, and that should drive up the uh, suppression of the false alarms so the detection rate will be around 98 to 99%. Um, it will never be 100%. There's always going to be a certain failure rate, but you don't want to be calling the forester at two in the morning and he runs out there to discover that it's just, you know, someone be burning a bit of trash. Um, for the most part, we're getting it right. And um, it still requires that there's a human operator in the loop just to do the final check, just to say, I know this shouldn't be there, therefore we must report it. Or I know this is so-and-so having a barbecue again, and let's just monitor, but not report right now. You should go into a field of science that interests you, and that preferably is also fun on top of that, because you never know what aspect of your scientific career may turn into something unbelievably useful. I mean, all science is useful. Um, something that might translate into economic or social benefit, you cannot predict it. And in fact, most of the things that we benefit from today, mobile phones, internet, sat-nav, these were all things that came out of research that was done decades ago, 20, 30 years ago, at a time when no one knew that they would have these applications. So people should do whatever science interests them, especially if it's fun, because in the future it will somehow, probably unknown to you at the time, translate into something incredible. And that's what's happened here in my case. I traveled to the Arctic and I traveled to the Antarctic because it was something I interested me that I wanted to do and I just, um, you know, enjoy that experience. Obviously I was doing science, I was out there for the excitement of discovery and for understanding things that hadn't been um, understood before, etc, etc. Um, and then of course you translate that into education, that's what universities are there for. The fact that it turned into something now which is uh, incredibly valuable in terms of societal and economic benefit, that came along more or less by serendipity. Um, but the potential was always there and it, the potential is always there for anybody in any field, doesn't matter what you're doing, even theoretical physics can translate into something amazing. Yeah. My research career has been unbelievable fun. Um, and the fact that I was able to take something that was blue skies research and turn it into something that was of great economic and societal benefit is just like the cherry on top of the cake. It's just, just unbelievable, actually. And it just shows you that it's all been worthwhile and that there's a great satisfaction in doing that. Yeah. Thanks for listening to This is Lancaster, global research tales from the north of England. 
To listen to more, just search podcasts at Lancaster University.